You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. We think we're the first who've like applied a sacred theory service design approach because football is so rich for it. It's such a sort of standout one where you're actually dealing in long-term emotional relationships over time. Football is already very meaningful. It's just a shame that it's sort of fallen away for some people. And I think we, we, it's, it's in a prime position to actually be there at the front of the meaningful economy. You know, when we have all this hard data stuff, the hard data only goes to back up your emotional decision. Did you use any hard data to choose your wife, your car, the name of your child, <laughs> all the really, really important things in your life? Did you use hard data? Uh, no. Hi, Richard here. If you've been reading my blog recently, you know I've been writing a lot about meaning in sport. This concept that soft is hard and hard is soft, that numbers are not quite so important, but the soft and fluffy aspect of what sport means is very, very important in making a social and digital media connection. I spoke recently at a conference in Geneva and I met Piers Connolly, who works for the Norwegian FA. He's big into meaning as well uh, in sport and he's put this into practice using some academic background to it as well to make the Norwegian fans more engrossed in their experience of supporting the team, even making it potentially insulated against team performance. Wouldn't that be great if our enjoyment, our engagement and our monetization didn't go up and down in relation to team performance? I wanted to explore this further, so I spoke to Pierce and uh, an academic he's been working with, Ted Matthews, about what they've done at the Norwegian FA. Remember, you can contact me on all social media. I'm at Mr. Richard Clark, E on the end of Clark. And Sports Content Strategy, that's out there on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as well. That's the name of my consultancy and indeed the name of this podcast. Do subscribe and still need more reviews, so please help me out with those reviews. And just finally, I wish you a happy Christmas and a prosperous new year. And here's Pearson Ted. It would have been great if Pierce had been named Bill, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, hi, uh, Pierce Connolly. I'm head of uh, digital services and um, the overall strategy project at the uh, Football Association of Norway. My name's Ted Matthews, and I am the chair of service design at the Oslo School of Architecture and Design. Thanks for speaking to us today. Um, now, I've written a lot of blogs about meaning in sport and the importance of meaning. And the reason I wanted to uh, talk to you guys uh, on the podcast was you've made a very practical application of this, um, which was really sacred theory into service design. And people won't understand what that is, and you, you, but you tried to make it happen for, for uh, Norwegian football. So um, I suppose, Piers, can you give us the ladybird introduction to sacred theory into service design, please? Yeah. Um, so from our perspective, from the football perspective, we were looking at how we improve the experience on match day, national team games here at Ullevold. Um, and we've done, as always, other either clubs or associations, we've done a huge amount of things. They, they tended to be ad hoc. We'd come up with some ideas. Maybe we'd talk to fans. We'd try some stuff. So it could be everything from, you know, um, everybody gets a red fluffy finger glove to a new kind of song. And we would try it and see if it'd work. Um, and then we had this idea, uh, because I came into contact with some other people, that we should perhaps see if there was some structure uh, around this. So there was a time of fan engagement, there was rising up using digital channels, but we felt there was something to do from the social sciences in it. And then through that, I came into contact with Ted, who has a, you know, a, a rigorous academic background in it. And the idea is to use some of the content and ideas that have been developed over many years in the social sciences into actual a football and a sports application. And this really hadn't been done before. People are very much on using brand, as you know yourself. And um, they, if you go to most matches, they'll, they'll work straight in the brand handbook, slap some brand up on it. And we thought there was like something really, really deeper. Um, a lot of it had to do with the thinking we had around this guy, Simon Sinek, that, that it all starts with why. Uh, we'd re recently done a re ourselves so we'd gone into some of those core issues but not deep enough we'd come up with the sort of what we felt was the very standard ideas on it um, and then through uh, almost sort of serendipity we came into contact with Ted because we worked with the Norwegian Research Council on our on our uh, branding and they said there are some people who actually look at this um, and through that we ended up getting a, um, a research grant and doing a whole lot of things um, with this idea of, of safety 
theory. And again, it's all around you. This is one of the things that we we, we talk to people about. It sounds very fluffy. Uh, it sounds very non-traditional. If you talk to most people, they'll either be on the commercial uh, return on investment side or the brand side. Um, but actually, this stuff is all around you. You just have to sort of open your eyes or have a different lens or different optic and you see it. So probably the best thing to do is to let Ted describe a little bit of where it actually comes from academically. Well, I, I mean, um, I mean, I'm originally a designer, a service designer who went into research and I did this PhD, um, which was to look at how you do, how you take sort of ideas uh, from theory relating to ritual, mythologies and symbols and what have you, and then use that as material in designing services. So if I take a, if I sort of rewind this a little bit, a lot of people don't know what service design is. I think when people think about design, they obviously think about stuff. So they think about cars and, and, and graphic design and logos, what have you. But service design is quite a new field. Of the, the use of designers in orchestrating better experiences for customers. So we understand the world from the customer's point of view and we try and change certain elements in the customer experience to improve it, basically. But we're doing that through a designly way. So um, this has been used in hospitals, in public transport, uh, and a lot of shops uh, are, are using this approach. Anyway, so bottom line is, what we've noticed that people are actually wanting more meaningful uh, consumer experiences. One of the, th obviously, some of the things that makes things meaningful is, is storytelling, connection to places, rituals, interactions with people, absolutely symbols, and how people sort of grow and work and experience things together. So um, looking at the theory from social anthropology allowed us to sort of say, well, here are some mechanisms that perhaps we could include into people's customer experiences. So obviously my, the PhD event did applied it to financial sector, telecoms, to tourism, but of course the main part of it being in football. Uh, and both Pierce and I, Big football fans, you're, well, who do you support, uh, Pierce, after a wonderful game the other night? Who was that? <laughs> Man United, yeah. thank you. <laughs> so I thought I'd remind him of that. Uh, I support Burnley Football Club, uh, and even better. Uh, even better yeah. uh, and, and obviously one of the things that keeps you going back, despite the bad results, is actually the sense of community and the meaningful uh, and the connection to place and, and the stories that we tell about ourselves and the ritual of football itself. And I think for, for to see that... Some of that is being solid uh, through this sort of the very sort of financial focus of football and the business of football. It's actually really important to go and look at what's meaningful about football again. And that's where we started saying, well, what's the value of ritual? What's the value of storytelling? Uh, what's the value of symbol uh, in this space? And how do we uh, a certain approach to bring that out? So how do, how do you make that practical? Because you're talking about something academic, something theoretical, and yes, it's it's been applied. But applying it to football, people talk about football teams playing in cathedrals. There's a quasi-religious aspect to it because faith is involved and myth is involved in order to be a football fan, to a certain extent. Fans tell themselves stories. But how did you make it practical for football itself? Because it's it's not like any other business. There is, there is a football business, but it's it's different in the sense that customers don't move teams. Like so that. that's where the idea of actually taking the knowledge that we built up or, or when we actually looked at what it meant to be Norwegian, what was happening in the sort of global society and put all that stuff down on paper first, rather than it just being in our in our heads to get an idea of where we were in terms of, say, the, the cultural capital, those actual stories that people tell themselves. What are they? How are they changing? What's the history of Norwegian football and what's its future? What What's actually happening? How does football, we talk about it being a society, Norwegian society is changing dramatically, having having been sort of fueled and powered by an oil economy, still is to a certain extent. We're over peak oil and we have to find something new. That's reflected in the, in the society itself. So we try to at least codify a lot of those things or, or capture them to build up that, that background information. What actually did it mean for you to support him who comes from across the whole country, uh, has a set of symbols, doesn't have too many rituals. That was one of the things that we did uh, identify. There are certain ones, but they weren't really amplified to the extent that we thought it could do. But 
captured all that. And then, as you say, the, the, the real key in it is to make something of it. So we designed a set of a first a model to show how would you actually model using traditional drama theory, using serpentine theory, a national team game. So we came up with a model that had five acts in it, where act three, as in all drama, is a sort of crucial act where a change happens, and that, that's the match itself. And then we built other things which we called um, designing for meaningful moments. So when you actually look at, and we sent people through customer journeys, so we had customer journeys developed for uh, normal fans, for VIP fans, for hardcore fans and for uh, family fans. Um, and on those multiple touch points that we identified, we started to say, okay, what are the primary uh, places where you could apply some meaning? Um, rather than just rip it straight from the brand handbook and put up a poster that says Norway are playing Sweden or whatever, what's actually, what are you trying to do on your journey into the game, um, around the game, uh, during the game and after, mm. Ted. And and through that, you've got really uh, always these constantly finding these transition points. So they're points when you're entering the sta stadium or it's points when you arrive, eat. They're kind of transitional points through the day and after the day. So in those transitional points, and especially points where people gather, we can start to orchestrate sort of... Um, you might say design for experiences that people can actually gather the meaning of why they're there. When you think about if you go and see a football game, if this if it doesn't mean anything, then really you're going guys running around or girls after a football for for ninety minutes. So so we we in these transition points. And the other thing that we've also done is to try and find uh, what we call a sort of a, a grand narrative. What's this big story? So if things are going to matter, we need to have a backstory. Uh, and if you actually look at the reality on the ground and the Norwegian sense of identity, the Norwegian sense of self, also on a football level, but on a national level, we cooked it down to this idea of the quest of the underdog. So this story of how um, sort of the, the Norwegians have always hit above their weight uh, in terms of, say, the, the, whether it's the heroes of Telemark, even sometimes in football and times also on a national level going off and digging that oil out of the sea. And so this story, this narrative, the, the quest of the, the underdog fits really well to then tell that story through those meaningful moments that we sort of orchestrate through the game itself. And the story will change and we, we're looking to changes with time but the same it's just about that evolution and we have a structure in place that allows uh, for us to to sort of start orchestrating these moments for people and there's two really important parts of it as well in, in the practical impl implementation um, one is the pure utility and taking away friction points so we do a lot of work in trying to identify those friction points and that's sort of classic service design from a utility perspective taking away cues um, making sure there's enough toilets, parking, all those sort of housekeeping uh, elements that you do in traditional service design. Then there's the what elements of meaning can you apply on the other points or within even those points themselves. And identifying that story really helped us, that underdog story, um, because we built on it and then other people started to pick up on it. So media started to do the sort of David and Goliath campaigns when we were, um, when we were playing uh, Germany. We had a lot of... Um, promotional material built around that underdog story and for a while until we got whopped again on the pitch too much uh, it really worked and we found that it, it resonated with people and we've applied the same model and I think that's what's interesting is applying actually a model on it where we went to clubs and we said okay to do this properly you have to identify your history um, some symbols some rituals and your culture and an overall sort of aesthetic that you have and put that into a model where you can do the same thing. Walk around, get head of marketing, CEO, get them to walk in the customer's shoes, as they say, go from the pub downtown where people walk up to the club, do all these things that they traditionally don't do. And then they started to see it. You know what? This isn't just sort of fluffy, crazy stuff. This actually makes sense. I can see my view down the road that it either makes me more money or gets more people to come but i can see where it actually helps to make meaning now a real practical example of it is something that that you probably need now it's like because there are lots of these touch points mm. so we had one in that we had actually quite a lot of fun with um was designing the coach yeah uh, redesigning the, the the bus that brought the team and uh, norwegian team around or brings them around and straight out of sort of brand manual 101 was stick a whole load of players and, and a bit of messaging on it. And then we used this tool for uh, the Meaningful Moment uh, or Meaningful Service Encounters tool and said, well, hold on, what, what does the bus actually do? 
go into there? Why is it there? What's it actually do? And that actually totally changed yeah. the design, just having that tool to do it. And so so you've kind of got this situation where you say you're looking at the bus, you say, well, let's let's make it brand relevant, blah, blah, blah. And you follow the brand value and, and it all looks right. But then I say, what's it, what does the bus mean as which act does it play out in? Uh, where what where is it going to drive? What's going to happen when it arrives? And then you start getting into what are the players wearing? How are the players acting when they get off the bus? What's the sort of the what's the first thing that meets them as they get off the bus? And, and then and, and that really actually started uh, designing bigger sort of the, it, it broadened the scope of the design space. So we obviously designed the bus differently. So instead of having players on, we had the shield and it was very noble and very dignified. We had to understand how the the bus, the design of the bus communicated with the police car that drove in front of it. We then started covering over the train tracks, which is just by the entrance to the stadium with the mountains of Norway. We started uh, designing sort of um, uh, sort of uh, the, the, the interior as they enter the, sort of the, the reception area of the stadium that sort of, uh, sort of lifted the store about Norway, about the underdog, and then how does sort of the players interact with the with the um, the fans? And so then you start orchestrating much more than just saying, "I oh, will stick a we'll stick a nice sticker on the bus." It becomes actually uh, a, a really important point in the whole game, and it gives you a, a direction, Richard, as well, because you just have to look around. You know, all clubs are doing this at the moment. They're designing the the. Um, how do players come out onto the pitch? They're designed their coaches and everything. What we've tried to do is actually apply a method to that mm. that pulls pulls um, a lot of disciplines together and is grounded in this whole idea of sacred theory mm. and des- designing from meaning. Mm. And, and, yeah, and I think that I think that's the interesting point because I was reading on some of the documents you kindly sent me and. Uh, players had a box that they were sent when they were called up and videos were made out of that and the first words of the national anthem were on the stadium the food was changed the playlist in the stadium was changed lots of touch points which were very applying to the senses and everything was was obviously uh, allied to this this underdog tale etc um so you so you did things with with your ears you did sit things with your mouth did you did do anything with 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 a sense like smell or anything like that because we were, we're always told that's extremely uh impactful on the memory it brings memories back if if you if you smell something of your childhood it immediately brings it back and and i i was very interested in the way you attacked the senses as it were i think um the one where we have looked a lot at is sound we haven't quite got the sense or to to um well, in fact, the smell at the moment, that would be cool to look at if you sort of get your ticket out of the envelope and it smells of the dressing room or something like this. Well, would be, well, uh, pe- well people <laughs> smell books. People smell yeah, books yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. things like that. And, and I, I think you're onto something because there are definitely uh, the, the smell of the sausage stand outside. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I... One I, of the clubs that we have there. There, there, there may be a new career for me, Piers, in football smells. <laughs> Who knows? Definitely. No, but the, the sensory element is, is really, really strong because, again, th- these are sensory cues that, that trigger deeper uh, um, memories or, or meanings. Um, and whether it's your first match or your 100 match, there are sort of certain sensory cues that can be really, really strong for you. What, what we did instead of was we looked at what were those really, really meaningful moments? So a couple of them would be, you mentioned the, the call-up. So we looked at what actually happened on a player call-up. And... Um, if you were lucky, you got a call from the manager. Uh, if not, the assistant manager. You got a couple of documents um, in the post, an insurance form, and a few other things. Um, and yet, when we talked to the players, they told us that some of the most important days of their life um, were either the birth of their children or their first national, especially their senior cap, uh, their first senior cap. So we thought that that's a moment that you could privilege. You could give it extra privilege more than just you know um uh, what it got at, at at the time um so we designed that little box um we have a beautiful video of a kid getting it it's his first time getting it when he's 15 and what he says around that we, we should translate and show it, is, is just fantastic of how 
important and proud it made him feel how it you know it he he wanted to keep going on this path to make it to the senior level so now every player comes in from the junior 15 level up to the senior level gets that box on their on their uh, if it's their first um, if it's their first call up and it's a very very simple thing and what we know again is given the, the sort of it doesn't exist unless you share it anymore that if you're a junior player or your first under 19 cap one of the first things you do with that box you take a picture and you share it on snap or instagram or something so it does have an effect on how we communicate but the point was again to strengthen your relationship to the team and the idea of being part of the national team um, itself we also looked at on the playlist thing was another interesting one that we had a because of a commercial agreement we had with our um uh, radio station they did the dj stuff so they had the playlist uh, before the game and it went from that playlist which could be anything a bit of techno a bit of rock and roll or something over to playing the national anthem so we looked at that and then redesigned it so that you just played in the last 15 minutes it's norwegian songs uh, that everybody pretty much knows and there's a whole lot of things we'd like to do there are some things like the alexander ruback thing with the violin that he won the eurovision song contest that we, we think that could be one of our sort of you know uh, key audio moments so there's a huge amount you can do on with, with audio the one we're going to look at um this year a lot is um entrance and exit from the stadium uh, we've tracked people coming out at the, the tube station you know they're all happy and stuff but by the time they've spent 10 minutes in a queue uh, a lot of that uh, enthusiasm leaves them so we want to say that okay that's that's a key moment uh, your transition from being just a joe soap on, on the tube to being somebody who actually has a ticket for the match that is one we can privilege and we, we want to highlight a few a few more of them for VIP people, for the players themselves, um, and, and sort of increase the focus. We don't have unlimited resources. It would be great if we were Barcelona or one of the big ones um, to do this. But, you know, we're Norwegian Football uh, Federation, so we have to be fairly, uh, really, really work on priorities. But we think, again, the approach and what we want to do now is have a lot more feedback from fans. We're started building building in some mechanisms to, to make that feedback a lot more real time uh, to see is this stuff actually having an effect. You know, so I mean, uh, we we did the work with the the Norwegian um, what you call the Premier League, the Elite Series. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that we managed to get in place is this is a fan zone. Now, obviously, fan zones we find them all over the place, but we tried to see that also in connection to uh, the build up to the game and how we could then bring in some of the storytelling, some of the symbols into that space before the game. And I think we've had a, we've had some really good success with that across the country where this particular club really understood the point of the fan zone, not just a way to sell more sausages or sell more shirts, but as a way to actually engage people in the build-up before the game. So, of course, in the States, they, when they, you know, American football, they do the tailgating where they sit and they, they, they have barbecues beforehand. Of course, in Contract. Norway, it's bloody freezing, so you don't always want to be hanging around somewhere that's too cold. But, in fact, actually creating spaces where people did want to hang out has made a difference to the uh, experience in the in the stadium and that's something again is what we want to do more of here uh, at the national stadium is to find the right transitional spaces uh, and find places where people can gather and and actually just bring to the game what it's really all about it's about community it's about people coming together and, and having a really great time wherever you're from uh, whatever gender you are whatever sexual orientation you are football is actually an amazing place that people can gather and be together how do you prove it's been successful because you're dealing with things emotions that are that are hard to measure relatively yeah true uh, there's a couple of ways so um if you take what ted just talked about there the fan zone that's now been adopted by the league as uh, something they want all clubs to do across the league um so of the 16 clubs i think 15 of them now have the fan zone so there's an adoption rate of it uh, within that fan zone they've shown that people are coming to the game earlier they're engaging with their local um, grassroots football clubs because we organize a little tournament you, you get a different club each week so we're connecting the football pyramid closer uh, um, together so that's one aspect of it it's not they're they're selling quite a lot within the fan zone and they're not cannibalizing the revenue from their concessions uh, within the arenas so that's that's in a fan zone perspective that's really really good um, around the national team games we're so much we, we've we do it by basically surveying people. So we look at their satisfaction rates. Did they notice a few things? Did they not notice a few things? The other ones. So, and that's something that we we've started with, and we'll do a lot more. The, the feedback so far has been very, very 
positive uh, to this. Fans really, really appreciate that we've actually turned up some simple things. So if, if we took out of everything we did, we've had a lot more focus on uh, the jersey, the crest and the national anthem. And there are symbols that people really, really recognise. Um, we would love to say that it's had an effect on attendance and stuff, but we, we can't do that yet. And the, the sports performance is still such a big factor on it. Isn't that the ultimate success? The fact that this becomes so much a celebration of Norwegian identity that almost the, the, the winning and losing of the team becomes not so important. The, the fact is, it, it's a, because it's a, tr- a true reflection of what it is to be Norwegian and especially a Norwegian football fan, that part of the fun and part of the celebration and the ritual is turning up when they're terrible because we all know certain, certain element of football fans love that. I'm turning to the Burnley fan here, especially. Yeah, no, no. it's <laughs> agonising. I moment. mean, you've talked about as well, Rajan, you know, um, um, season ticket sales going up at some of the clubs where they actually get relegated. And the, the idea would be, yes, that that would be absolutely fantastic to believe that. And I, and I do believe that over time. Um, we're, we're bringing in new elements as well, that whole understanding of, from that paper, how we gather. So Ted was uh, in contact with the people in the Harvard Divinity School there to understand why do millennials and Gen Z people gather? Um, because it's a completely different cultural context mm. than, than when we grew up. Um, it, it's very, very different now to what the role of sports club in terms of um, people moving from the country into the major cities, getting their identity, which was the genesis of it, um, to something now where, you know, people aren't hungry. They, uh, they can sit at home and watch TV and and things are almost better. They don't have to worry about parking or, or beer or anything. It's all there for them. But they still are that. There still is that deep need, human need to gather, and we want to understand that and build on that more. For Norwegian fans, um, we want to believe that it would be more than just the result. However, that's a cultural thing. Norwegian fans are used to in other sports winning. They win in gold medals aplenty uh, in in skiing. They have won in handball, the Olympic handball, for quite a long uh, time. They were used to their women's team uh, winning. And they're, they're sort of, they punish us by, by poor sports results. And unfortunately, the, that takes time to see that, you know, the, the sports team is also a reflection of the society. That the sports team that is at the peak of the pyramid is a mirror up to how you've built your society and how you run your team and how you, you, you develop players. But ideally, yes, we would love to think that building that deep relationship with what it means to be Norwegian, to play the world's favourite game, to represent your country on the international stage, and that you're there as a fan representing your country should be enough to fill the stadium. Yeah, and is there, I mean, is there a concern as well that if you prove you're successful, you can prove it with survey methods or or whatever to give some evidence that this has been proved successful isn't there then we've all worked at football clubs where you know that thing that, that's really been successful and got people interested great well I've got this sponsor really interested in it and they'd like to get involved and, and, and the and you come under pressure from the guys at the top saying there's a lot there's a lot of money at stake here because a sponsor wants to get involved and isn't isn't that a isn't that a concern? I mean, it's, it's perhaps easier at a at a national team than a club team that is that is chasing. But if you were to deal if you were to do this at Burnley with their claret and with their Bob Lord and 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 all the iconography, and then it proved yep. successful and a sponsor came in, is that hard to turn down or is it accommodatable? If that's a word. I suppose it's, a, it's slightly down to the attitude of the club and whether you see things on a long-term perspective or whether you think this can be a quick turnaround. I think, I think the, the, there's a very strong argument for, 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 for keeping that authenticity and that, that, that meaning within the club. And if a sponsor wants to get on board, then obviously you can say, yeah, we'll take your umpteen millions and, and sort of do a nice quick turnaround and add some bells and whistles to this. Or you say, well, actually, over the long term, we've seen we've built this fantastic fan sort of commitment and engagement. And it would be a really shame to lose it by sort of uh, bringing a Donald Trump uh, into the mix of that. So I think it's really about how... Uh, we sell this story and and how we are advocates for really what football is about and it is about community it is about meaning it's about values so i think very much we have to do that is there also an argument that 
this sort of thing should be organic. That fans should do it for themselves. And is there a is there, or there, is there a, pu- a pushback almost in being prescriptive? Here's your here's your five sections. Here's the journey we're taking you on. Well, football fans like things to be organic, and I, I worked in Major League Soccer, and some of the clubs were more prescriptive about their uh, fan journeys and their fan culture, and others allowed it to generate itself. And one of the interesting things I found when I worked at a team called the Colorado Rapids was we were in the position to almost create a fan culture because they started to do it themselves, and as a club we amplified what they did, but we didn't create it, we just amplified it. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's about amplification. It's about taking what's there already, and then make and sort of giving it steroids. The thing is, it, there are certain places that you, the people do need a little bit of a nudge. I wouldn't say a push, but certainly a nudge. And and it, and there is a, a certain a large nudging element to what we're actually doing. We're not trying to 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 add anything that's that's weird. I know that in the eighties in Norway, they tried to get they tried to get cheerleaders here in Norway on the pitch to on the soccer pitch, and Everybody rejected it because it felt completely foreign, and and really, I I think there there is a it, it, I would ask the question is what where do you think rituals actually come from? They don't just appear. Somebody actually makes them up. And there's a wonderful book um, by a chap called Hobsbawm. It was written in the 60s, which is called The Invention of Tradition, and it it it, it sort of tracks the way that a lot of the stuff that we think of very natural pomp and circumstance in the UK have all invented in one foul swoop, including a lot of the traditions relating to the kilt and to tartan and all those kind of things. So most rituals have a starting point. Um, and it's a lovely idea that these things are purely organic. What is noticeable, and, and a, a lot of, of anthropology suggests this, or at least sociology at least, suggest that if rituals are introduced that are not wanted or are meaningless or artificial, they just don't get adopted. What we often find is that uh, Malinowski writes about this in in the late uh, 60s, is that often there is a societal need for rituals and somebody will come along and start it. And then those are adopted because people actually want them and want them. And so if you look at Halloween, uh, it's interesting in, in, in Norway, Halloween did not exist 10 years ago at all, in the slightest, nothing. And now it's one of these massive uh, events of the year. My kids absolutely love it. And it's a tradition that's been borrowed from the United States. Now, in, I don't know if you've ever been in Norway on the 31st of October. It's pretty bloody miserable, actually. It's dark and usually wet and cold. And there is actually nothing between uh, the, sort of the, the, the summer and Christmas in Norway. So suddenly you see that there is a need with people to do one thing is to actually gather and, and actually have something that's fun in the middle of a very dark period. And people do go out. People have embraced it. People have enjoyed it. I think also there's a, a Norwegian need to go and spend some money on their kids, which they they really love doing, me included. So I think what, what actually happens, it, it feels like you're orchestrating stuff. Now, we've put it into a system that allows us to to um, uh, know when things should happen and where they should happen. Yet at the same time, the big thing at the end of the day is how people adopt. And, I, and, and we identify a need. So there is a need, for example, in relationship to a player who's called up to his country to somehow uh, find... A, a symbol of meaning in what's happened. So an email that says, would you like to come and play next Saturday, doesn't actually cut the mustard. So we introduce a gifting ritual, which allows the football player to actually have a, a, a totem, a talisman, a symbol of what's just happened, something that's really meaningful to them. So the, the bottom line is, and I say there's a lot of theory to support this, is that people don't adopt things if they're not desired. People don't adopt things that are artificial. People don't adopt things that don't feel authentic. The thing that we're doing is obviously we're looking for things that are there already and we're presenting them to people so they can engage in them. So we orchestrate some stuff because, in fact, you can't design meaning. You can't design experiences, but you can design for them. And we have an idea of what we would like to move people towards. And we see that people do want them. People do want to adopt them because there's actually a massive void at the moment. Pierce, in terms of cost... I want to move from the theoretical down back back to the practical. It was quoted a hundred thousand euros you spent on this. Is that correct? Yeah. Without giving any secrets away, what was the biggest cost of this? The biggest cost was was uh, basically time, um, both people's time to start to understand it and our time to develop it. So that was the what we wanted to learn from as well. How would we actually? Um, 
develop a model rather than just a sort of ad hoc system. So I've mentioned that before. So that's where we got, that was the reason that we got the funding from the Research Council as well. It's a program called uh, Designing Through Innovation. And then the report that we delivered back to Design Council was of sufficient value that we we, we actually got some more money um, out of them for an additional piece of work uh, to do on it. So that that's where most of the work came in, in developing the model. Then what we did was we, in, in terms of that money that was used there, some was already there for the event budget itself. It would have been used uh, differently. So we said, no, by using this model here and using these things that we found, here's a different way to spend uh, spend the money. In terms of additional spend, I can't go into the figures, but what we've done recently is that we've secured additional spending for this approach. So there's a large chunk of the, of the strategy of the commercial department now is actually going into using this approach to um, to raise the importance of international football generally, raise the importance of um, our particular national teams and the, uh, the where most of the cash goes into is the actual implementation of the model around the national team games. Is there an expectation to make that back or do you want to show you've made a percentage of that back? And, and you've talked about arriving earlier uh, in the fan, um, and, the, and the fan zones and, and rolling out, out into league clubs. And I get that's that's absolutely important, but there's there normally there's someone who says I want a I want a return of some sort on this and quickly, albeit this is the type of return that might might be paying you back in twenty thirty years time, and that's always always hard, isn't isn't it? That's really hard. I mean, these, these things are hard to put figures on, and especially if I mean we really understand the imperative of in in a club um, environment, especially here in Norway, uh, attendances have over time um, gone down and so there's a real imperative uh, to make sure that this this can have a, a, a payback so the way we did that first was we ran a pilot on two clubs to actually show they were they both of those clubs had enough belief in this and enough of a um, call it a foundation in what they'd already done they were going to a rebranding themselves so we actually went out there and did a couple of workshops with them to show them this was a way of doing it, um, incorporating a service journey, incorporating that model of how to use your um, symbols, your rituals and stuff to actually build this. So that's where they actually freed up some um, uh, some resources to do this. Um, over time, again, we really want to get into a financial model, if possible, to see how can you actually put figures on something like meaning. I, I think it's really hard um, and, and it's very, very difficult to say, you know, if if the stadium attendances here are growing. Is it because of this? Is this a contributory factor? Or is it because they just won the nation, their group in the Nations League? Obviously, it's going to be both. We would like to. We're going to try a lot more things out with the junior teams. And I think the you, working with the underage team uh, and their venues are a lot smaller will allow us to do certain things. The problem there is that we've seen with, uh, for instance, with under-21s, um, as soon as they weren't going to be able to qualify uh, for, for the finals, attendance just fell off uh, just dramatically. So it's really, really difficult there. Um, but definitely over time, um, we will develop models to show that this has a, uh, a form of return in either a deeper relationship and find ways to, to, to model that. I mean, this is the same. How do you put money on, on you know, social media engagement? If you have preference scores, recommender scores, those things that you that you use to eventually put uh, some kroner and uh, or some some uh, financial elements onto it, but we're we're not there yet. Where we think this could actually also really be interesting is um, you've you've seen with the expansion of you know so many of the Premier League clubs into into new markets in in, in Asia etc. Uh, Bundesliga clubs have done it quite well. That you have to go in and understand the culture down there and do the same sort of exercise by having a deeper understanding of the culture, culture on the ground there, you can't just go in and copy paste what you've done in your home uh, market. And by having a method to do this, a sort of brand manual, we think this could help uh, other clubs as well. And it can certainly help in terms of um, we'd like to talk to uh, and have been talking to the guys in UEFA and FIFA about it, how they approach um, these exercises around the major tournaments. So in, in, whether it's Euro or, or World Cup or Champions League, there's definitely things to be done there that, that give you more meaning. Yeah, I mean, I, when I watched it also, it was, it was interesting because this was at the early stages of clubs really inter internationalising their content. And there was always the idea of, how do you approach this? Do you have people in market or do you have a, 
uh, a journalist from that particular market in your club, for example, at Arsenal, we had a, a Chinese journalist that, that travelled with us to all domestic games. Uh, so I took that approach. But also, having watched enough games in bars all around the world, what I tended to find was it wasn't a case of the local fans um, interpreting the club in a different way. They were going through exactly the same sort of rituals, exactly the same sort of songs and dressing the same way and trying to impersonate almost the home fans. They wanted a bit of what was going on in Emirates Stadium or Anfield or Old Trafford rather than transferring it the other way. You know, so so it was it was about giving them that sort of experience and and allowing them a little foothold in the ground itself where the game was going on. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the things we've we've discussed back and forth is about as as some, especially, uh, you know, especially in the Premier League now, there's a lot of clubs that are going very much international. To what extent can they uh, maintain the Manchester or the Southampton, or not the Southampton, very international these days, thing, but how do you maintain the Manchester in, in the Manchester City experience? Uh, and and uh, it's like, what are, you, what are you actually buying when you actually... Uh, engage with a team. Is it a glamorous team? Uh, you know, is it the the nice design stuff from Nike or Adidas, or is it some of the bigger stories? This sense of connection to a place, and I think that's where a lot of the teams are actually losing out because it's not just about the stadium, it's not just about the players, it's not just about the manager, or just about the fans. It's about where the fans are from. Yeah. And you were saying yeah. in a way they're mirroring a group of people who are actually not just expressing their belonging to Everton the club or to Manchester United. They're also expressing their belonging to Everton the place, uh, to, to, to Manchester or Burnley in my case. Uh, and I think that's actually, there's so much rich material there to dig into that people will engage with that. And I think it's interesting, we, we saw, um, obviously we we're always interested in any of the, anything that, that sort of uh, has a modicum of the meaning story. And I've seen, I don't know if you've ever seen the M&M advert um, for cars from Detroit and it really plays into the story of Detroit and connects that to the car now obviously the story of Detroit is one that's gritty and tough and, and a little bit rough but they managed to bake that into the story of the car that they're selling you and I think that that's where an area of potential because at the end of the day, there's a thousand teams around the world that can wow you with some amazing graphics, some amazing players, some amazing shirts but you will never take away the fact that Burnley Football Club is connected deeply to Burnley itself. And when you support Burnley, you also support a, a, a slightly run-down but fantastically northern Lancashire town. But I, I think that's... I mean, I, where I look here for that, and it's, it's something that I've increasingly uh, tried to study, and obviously I've, I've been involved in working in foreign leagues and things, but I, I would look for DC and Marvel Comics here because... If you look at all the all the superheroes, you hear stories of yes, well, I like Spider Man because he was this type of character. I liked Iron Man because he didn't have any powers; he was just very clever and he had some money. Mark Hamill and and the director of the Last Jedi did a talk at South by Southwest while I was there, and the first guy up to ask a question said. Uh, Mark, I would like to thank you for your portrayal of Luke Skywalker because I was born without a hand and Luke Skywalker was a person without a hand and that meant a lot to me for that reason. Now, to take that across, I find it really interesting is because if you can find those stories within clubs like Burnley, if, if you can find Burnley a, a really good example because they're extremely local, aren't they? All their support comes from right around the the town or city. I'm not even sure if it's a city, Burnley. I think it's a town. Um, they're very focused on Burnley. Everyone in Burnley supports Burnley and the it doesn't stretch very far outside Burnley. That's my understanding of it. Okay, can you find that story and find towns in America, towns in Japan, towns in China where you can mirror that story and say, well, my personal story is a little bit like Burnley, so Burnley are my surrogate. Because that's what we Absolutely. found in DC Comics and Marvel Comics that really worked. And I think there's something in that. I don't know about you. No, I mean, just quick, I, I, I know um, uh, Pierce is desperate to jump in, but I think I have 
again, it's a, we talked about Detroit, but I, it's funny, I actually have a, a Detroit a Detroit caps because of my this sense of identity with Detroit. And maybe it is coming from Burnley, some similarities there. But I think it's very much about those archetypes, about those the heroification of these everyday stories in many ways. I'm going to let Pierce jump in because he was he was eager to speak just then. No, I, I, this is a really rich area for us yeah. to, to mine again. What What is the sort of the core and essence of that Burnley story, or for me as a sort of Republic of Ireland supporter, uh, and Norwegian, I'll have both of those caps on. What What are the essences of those that you can actually transfer to other people or, or other locations? So, why would somebody in a you know a, an industrial city in China decide to support Man City or Bayern, who do a fantastic job of you know the, the image of their club, um, or would you go for Burnley? And and what's really interesting there is that. There's a huge body of theory around this. So when you mention Star Wars, I mean, the whole Star Wars story based on that Campbell's uh, The Hero's Journey, that's that's all he did. He built it on those 22 steps of the journey. So it reaches deep into the human psyche. I mentioned this at a talk recently of, you know, we, we do have cavemen and cavewomen brains. They were developed over those, you know, 170,000 years ago. And it, so of the things that were there resonate with us still. Um, that's why I really like that um, when Yuval Harari talks about it in, in Homo Deus, we're off on the theory fluffy bit here again, but how most storytelling up to the time of uh, after enlightenment and, and romanticism was about the, the pure deed of the hero. The knight went away and slayed the dragon, rescued the damsel, the king uh, defeated the bad mm -hmm. king, all these sort of stories that were based around uh, deeds and yet afterwards, the stories that resonate with us most are probably the Luke Hamill story in Skywalker, because you get something of not just the deed that he did, but of the inner transformation. So that root of, you know, the, the story of becoming something, the, the transformation from boyhood to manhood or uh, from, from girlhood into womanhood, whatever. Um, and, and they're the ones that really resonate with us. So we go away from the purely heroic deed to the story of the of the everyman. And I think that's where we have sport we're way behind we're still yeah. on you know your team goes beats my team your team wins the champions league or goes to the world cup and where is my part in that story that's what we want to build when yeah. it really comes down to it we want to say that norway are on this grand narrative to try and make it to the euro 2020 we've made it to the world cup for the women next year where, where am i in that i'm i'm here living in this country my kids are growing up here where am i in that if if we manage to sort of make that link on an authentic way and amplify what's already there, then I think it'll have a really, really positive effect. Yeah, and the really important thing here is that those stories that we tell about ourselves, uh, we actually celebrate them through rituals. So, so often what we find is that these stories that resonate around is the rituals that tell and enact those actual stories. And actually they strengthen our commitment to the group through the ritual and they strengthen our commitment to the stories and that builds that sense of identity and, and builds that sense of belonging as well. So it, it, the two are very, very much linked together, if that's not been clear before, this link between the storytelling and the performance of that uh, through gathering and through ritual. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting when Arsenal changed stadiums. I was at the club during that period of time. And of course, Tottenham have just literally in the last couple of days opened their doors and allowed their supporters to have a look at the stadium. And it's interesting because I think they wanted them to tweet pictures and, and create some buzz around it. And I haven't looked too much because I don't tend to look too close at Tottenham things. Um, but the, the, they're, they're already thinking about rituals and because at Arsenal we had this process of, of Arsenalification, Arsenal, Arsenal I never could say it, where the, the, <laughs> the stadium was pretty bare at the start and then it was branded, the heroes together, the, the, the players in, in, uh, with their backs to you uh, linked together on the, on the cause around the stadium, in the, uh, that was the big branding. But inside there were murals of program, murals of famous goals, murals of Arsenal in the community, Arsenal Olympians, Arsenal, all this, all this kind of stuff. But it wasn't, uh, as far as I'm aware, it, it was mm. it was done, I'm sure there was done with, with, with supporter involvement, but it wasn't done in such a sociological way and uh, an academic way. It was more of a supporters and marketing <laughs> way, which is the interesting thing. But I think stadiums... <clears throat> really important here because that's well that's your home i mean i wrote a piece yeah. where 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 i was talking about atletico bilbao and the fact that they almost shun success because they want to keep 
their mm. their 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 players reflective of their region. And of course, I didn't. I'd forgotten that their stadium is is called the Cathedral. <laughs> I'd mm, forgotten. Yep. You know, it's it's yeah. all there, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I think that I think it's um, I think it is interesting because it, that goes that difference between really trying to understand where people are coming from contra this sort of branding approach, which is about in, informing people what 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 uh, this kind of glamorous view or something that's sexy uh, or just imposing that on people. And I think that's where we really feel you have to understand the world from from the fans point of view, but at the same time, try and understand what that can translate into. I think Brighton have done a fantastic job of that. They've included the community in, in, in sort of the, the development of the spaces. What we tried to do here at the stadium was to actually select not too many of those stories because what ends up happening, you just put up thousands of pictures of goals being scored and it's pretty meaningless afterwards. So what we try to say, well, what are those stories that people connect to the quest of the underdog and actually highlight them stories? So, you know, is it is it when Norway beat uh, Hitler's team in 1936? Or is it when, when Norway beat um, Brazil in 1998? These are the stories that tell that singular story. So it's about identifying stuff that's not random and on brand. It's about actually selecting the things that are important to people. And those things we can find out by talking to people, but also by looking at that cultural material and saying, well, these are the things that we'll lift. These are the things we'll bring together to tell that that story that we think is important to, to Norwegian people uh, and to the Norwegian football fans. Is this applicable to clubs? Because clubs are more... For me, I know you've rolled it out within the Norwegian top division, but for me, clubs are more short-termist and they can buy players, whereas national teams can't buy players and they play games in a in a, a longer calendar. Um, is it is it as applicable to clubs in your opinion? I would say definitely. Um, two point points of it. Again, the the pure utility part of service design that's definitely applicable. Um, there are so many touch points that you can improve. So so that one, yes, and using a method to do it. Um, and we're we're surrounded by that now. Whether it's whether it's Amazon or the social platforms, they're very very good at this at looking where are the friction points and, and and taking them away. So that that element of it is there. But also, I, I really believe that uh, despite the sort of you know the um, immediacy and and the short term needs of clubs that to to exist over time it's really really powerful to, for them to build those stories that again you you we're just passing through we're just in our 10 years around the globe or whatever if you're in marketing and stuff but you're really looking to no matter where you are in a club you're really looking for that sort of lifetime affiliation that's what you want to build so i think the the responsibility on own and onus on you is to actually look at this as well because you can do lots of short-term stuff, and it may, you know, shift the needle on your balance or, or or your revenue from year to year. But I think if you include elements of this over time, you make it sustainable within your local community, um, and helps you grow internationally. If if that's your um, if that's your goal as well, I think one of the best examples um, on looking what amazing story of how they did it locally is definitely Atlanta and the MLS how they actually went deep into you know let's make something special here and really apply this sort of customer centric fan thing and they've done an amazing uh, story in the NFL we've looked at Minnesota Vikings the rituals that they have mm. with the, 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 the skull thing which is the Viking clap that the Icelandic uh, team did so well and this giant big horn that they blow these things are amazing and there's, there's lots of these examples out there um, and, but, and but, we think but that, that is taken from Iceland football I mean that—that's the point. That I mean, no, I know they're Vikings, and there is a bit of that in there. Well, yeah, but, I know, but that's but, what I mean. But could things... you do that in football? Because football fans will know that's taken from somebody else, and football fans hate, um, in my opinion, they hate the idea of uh, taking someone else, else else's culture. Yeah. They claim ownership. It's not just no. It's not just Iceland. So the clap has been around, and then the Russians yeah. sort of took it over as well. So it yeah, is yeah. maybe an international football. Definitely at club football, you're onto something where the, you know yeah. the, the 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 loyalty to your stuff. I would never do anything that if it was invented in Man City or something. So yeah. um, and I think, but that's where you again you have to look at that. You have to remain authentic. You have to mine things. There will be some things that come out of. Um, what did the guy from Man City say? That the, the Premier League fans were number 13 in terms of numbers for them. There will be some rituals that come out of the Chinese supporters of Man City or out of the South American supporters of it. But you have to have a method to do this. You have to actually understand it. Yeah. And I, I think it will have effect. The other one thing is also have to add that we haven't forgotten here is that um, 
There's a huge set of things that we can also do in mass participation sports. So at grassroots level, if you think about the first time, or if I think about the first time I delivered my daughter to the local club, that was it. I delivered my daughter yeah. to the local club. There was no sort of ritual of uh, a kind of a welcoming package or anything that marked um, a really, really big day. She was nervous as hell. I was there. The whole lot of her mates were there. But the club really didn't do anything special. So there's a huge you know, ability for people to do something at mass participation level. And our point is that if we get this right at national team level, we'll have a set of tools that are easy to implement and relatively, well, not costly. The the thing that you have to put into it is time. But to actually identify, oh, you know what? Delivering your kid to a, a, a club is a really big mm. event. Mm. What can I do about well, it? Yeah, if it, you're given it, it, it's interesting because I'm seeing people on LinkedIn now tweeting, first day at a new job, here's my pack. And they've got the pad and they've got the pen yep. and they've yep. got the lap and yep. it's all branded. And you're going back to... to um, mass participation well my kids um uh, swam and played football uh, soccer in the u.s when we lived there when i was working in colorado and of course one thing that they do over there now i understood they did the national anthem b before every professional sporting fixture i didn't realize they did it before every uh, participation or decent sized participation fixture so there's something in that as well um yep. you know which is something we don't do in e in england you know so there's that one point i wanted to make is because you're dealing with national teams and as i say you're not transferring players and th that's relatively straightforward how do you would you deal with having to maybe deconstruct a story for example sol campbell who was tottenham's captain he moves to Arsenal, direct transfer, and becomes what they called him a Judas when Arsenal played there mm. uh, soon afterwards. That that story, you might have built a story around him, for example, and you have to deconstruct that, having constructed it. How how difficult is that to do? What's the what's your thought process around around a situation such as that? Well, I think one thing that we we've never done is actually we've never built a story around individuals. Right. So we always, it's always about building uh, the story around the club and around the team and around the fans, not about... So he said it's very much about place, not individuals. Having said that, what we would like to do going forward is pick out some individuals of a team who represent a certain character type, whether it be the joker, the the, the captain being a, a specific one. Mm -hmm. and, and you, as a player, have that role now. That'll change because there'll be a new captain, there'll be a new joker, there'll there'll be a um, that that sort of role. There'll be the real serious. Uh, but we will those roles, and you will fill those shoes uh, for the moment. But we won't in, in national team. We'd like to the star is the team. Um, so in, in that's the sort of national team perspective. I think in terms of having to deconstruct a story, that's a really interesting sort of challenge, and you would have to see. Uh, yeah, you know, it is a job that there is free movement uh, of players and stuff. And if you, you can't just import the same story. So you have to then go see what, what's Campbell's role in your team, in the new team, um, rather than just importing his old story. Mm. I don't think it's easy, uh, but teams manage to do it. I think fans, you know, understand to a certain extent that there's uh, there's transfers. Some of them, if you come from the direct rivalry club across North London, then it's going to be harder. But actually deconstructing a story, then I think you have to go again and work with the fans on it. And this is something that we're really clear on. We we want to have a dialogue with fans. We're not saying that we'll come up with something and you just um, mm. you you just um, um, incorporate into your rituals. Th these things are really really dependent on that dialogue with fans and understanding. So where does it go from here? You've you've achieved a certain amount without. It's fair to say conclusive results either way but but certainly positive signs is that fair to say and so where, so where do you go from from here where do you take this now three elements of that i'd say we are continuing um with the national team in norway both national teams so men's and women's um that this approach is now part of uh, almost operations where we continue to sort of refine the model the approach that we've developed is now part of operations so planning for the women's world cup um 
uh, in France next year, this process is really, really deep into it. So we have this idea of that the team is our, our catchphrase is uh, stronger together. So we're building a whole lot of elements around what rituals reflect that. Um, how will we do the last game before they go away to it? How will we incorporate that into when they're actually down at the World Cup, etc.? So that's that's sort of core uh, part of planning already. The same thing will happen for the qualifiers for Euro qualifiers. So when we play the first game, home game against Sweden, we'll have a whole set of things that have come out of the this process. So that's number one, that the national team um, uh, games go from the theoretical uh, into the operations. Then we um, are talking to anybody who will listen to us really at the moment. So we have a, a sort of a, a, a informal dialogue uh, with UEFA on this and lots of no other national associations who've seen that some of the things are really strong. Mm. Um, so they get, and I mean, that's fair to say that when you talk about it first, you, the initial reaction is, this is real fluffy. What does it actually mean yeah. uh, in it? So we have to work more on that. But they've seen the likes of there are certain associations who've now already incorporated the um, the call-up box. Mm. So so just that as a ritual, uh, they see that. And we want to build on that and show, yeah, but here's more of the model. Um, so we want to uh, work closer with other um, national associations. Mm. And then there are other elements that, that um, because of Ted's PhD work, uh, which he'll tell you about, um, now working with other companies outside of sport and is perhaps certain clubs and stuff to do it as well. So we're really interested in actually, and we're not just going to sit down and say, oh, we gave it a whirl and nothing's going to happen out of it. We'll probably try really hard to push it out to other people who will, who are willing to listen to us. Yeah. Ted, you are on um, on, on no, how you work with. Just, I mean, I, I mean, we've had a, there's a couple of clubs that have, have wanted to talk to us about what we're doing, and also, as I say, to take it beyond actual uh, uh, football. So, uh, we've we are, you know we've applied the method to uh, tourism, uh, and it became actually part of the Norwegian national strategy uh, for meaningful tourist experiences. And so that's actually ongoing work that they're doing uh, and building, uh, but also to work with a very large sports brand as well to to look at how. We can apply some of this work to to their to their, 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 the way that they are rethinking their products. So there's a, there's quite a large scope uh, to test and try. Uh, and and you know the, if you talk about whether there are, uh, we have no provable results. No, but the th the fact is people are seeing value in what we're doing and actually see it as a way to build engagement over time, whether it's fans or whether it's tourists or whether it's customers. Uh, and it's uh, I think it's uh, you know we, we are still dependent on all the other things that people do. Obviously, the branding part becomes integrated into this, so it's not just going off on tangents that's separate to sort of designing for meaning. Uh, and 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 again, it's 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 is to, to keep developing the model uh, and to apply it to more and more spaces. Is anyone else doing this? I should have asked that at the start, really, but is, is anyone else in this space? No. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But no. Well, in, indirectly there is. I mean, yeah. there, there are obviously a lot of brand people will say, yeah, but that's what we do anyway. Yes, um, yes. I mean, that that's what I was going to say. I mean, I've seen, is it Schalke who are the coal miners and I've seen their huge coal mine around the dugout and things like that and they'll, and they'll say this is kind of the same thing now i know it's not but they'll say that it is yeah so does it we think as well that this is an the whole idea of service design experience design design for meaning that's really emerging i mean mckinsey came out with a paper last month about design for the first time uh putting it in a sort of a corporate agenda or C-suite level uh, for the first time really that was one of the major consultancy houses talking about this you've seen some of the other consultancy houses buy up or uh, start to have design um, competence and design consultancies in, in their portfolio so it's definitely growing we think we're the first who've like applied a a sacred theory service design approach um, mm. because football is so rich for it it's such a sort of standout one where you're actually dealing in emotions you're dealing in long-term emotional relationships over time the people who do it best do we say they're the the churches the catholic church as uh, <laughs> they've been doing this for two thousand years they're really really good at it and they uh, they have a deep understanding of of how it works as well mm. um but we think we're strangely enough we're one of the first little outfits to do it I think I'll leave it. So there. if anybody wants to give us a call, <laughs> <laughs> I interrupted you there. I interrupted your horrible sales pitch at the end of this. This is about meaning, Pierce. This isn't about selling anything. You ruined it. We've got an hour of this. <laughs> you can you can edit that bit out. <laughs> no, no, I'm leaving it in now. I'm leaving it in now. No, no, no. 
No, but, but all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more. You, you asked for help. What helped you? Would it be easier for you if other people adopted this? Because you're an outlier at the moment. And I'd argue that it's, you know, there's stories about England in the World Cup that they talk to, uh, that they're, they're, the content creators at their sponsors saying, look, we don't want a story of we're going to, we're going to win, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, the other, because the expectations weren't high and, and people were jaded with the national team performance. So the sponsors created a lot of content around community and kids. People are nibbling at the edges of, 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 of this, but would it be easier if, if someone went into it like you were going into it? Because you can share knowledge here, because presumably you're, um, there's a lot of time, energy, and money being being thrown because you're having thrown at this because you're having to develop it yourself. Is it easy? I think if we got ones, if we had some help from one of the big ones, if we actually had a chance to say, look, we know it sounds fluffy, and we're really clear on that, but give us the time. Look what it's actually about. This is a sort of a, a you know experiencing is understanding and believing when you actually see this. What we're talking about, how well grounded the social science and the anthropology actually is, and but hasn't been applied to a call it a, a experiential or almost over to the business side of an, an operations of events then i think we managed to get and we haven't been that active i have to say we haven't exactly gone out and formed a consultancy or or done anything to to do that so it's it's through our own network and i'm, I'm quite active within uefa and stuff so we we have some um uh, uh, clubs and uh, especially associations that we talk to but i think we, we should do it deserves somebody big having a look at it put it that way it's all out there it's all shared so it, yeah i mean people can go and read it and they can interpret it in the way we they want so you know you'll find the articles online you'll also find them in in sort of publications but again you know i, I think we you know, like you say we should, we be, should more be more active, proactive yeah. sorry richard you were going to say yeah but uh, ted has to go his, his car has gone out of parking so, all right uh, so I He's a, a Yorkshire man who can't pay up uh, more right. than an hour. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you. I'll, all right. So now's the time for a really open-ended question for Ted to talk about. So <laughs> uh, no, but m all right. My, my my last one is Pierce. You've used the word fluffy a lot here, and yeah. I've been writing about the fact that hard is soft and soft is hard. That everyone's got metrics now. Everyone can claim that this content works, that content works, but you actually can't measure the resonance of it and the the hard numbers don't mean as much as they used to because everyone's hacking to a certain extent. So yep. is this the future? I believe so. And when you actually ask people, oh, yeah, you know, when we have all this hard data stuff, the hard data only goes to back up your emotional decision. You know, there's a, did you use any hard data to choose your wife, your car, the name of your child, <laughs> all the really, really important things in your life? Yeah. Did you use hard data? Uh, no. So let's 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 put things in perspective. It's the resonance, it's the emotional things that we really have to get right. The data will support you around it. And there's quite a lot of written material and a lot of research to suggest is the growth of this transformation meaning economy now. And uh, you find that you find in uh, that uh, across all different sectors. And I think that um, football is already very meaningful. It's just a shame that it's sort of fallen away for some people. And I think we, we, it's, it's in a prime position to actually be there at the front of the meaningful economy. All right, I'll definitely leave it there. Ted, go and go and rescue your car. Yeah, well, well, well thanks, thanks, Richard. Thanks for talking to us. Come on, Burnley. You know, <laughs> get out of them. Thank so, you very much for your time, guys. It was great. It was a real pleasure. Thanks yeah. a lot, mate. Bye. Thank bye. You. Uh, Take it easy, Richard. Please follow at Sport Content Strategy on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Sports Content SP. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at mrrichardclark.com. Sports Content SP.